I've elected to uh, take up where we left off last time I was with you uh, a few weeks back. We'll be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you turn there with me, we'll be taking it up, the text in verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. I'll be reading through verse 22, although our text will be verses 14 through 18. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Thus far, the word of God. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, you have appointed the foolishness of preaching, and we know that in our day it's despised as it has been down through the generations. And yet you have manifest your great power that with the working of your spirit, blessing the living word going forth, that you have called together a people, a people unto yourself, a people redeemed by Christ, a people whom you are fashioning into a holy temple that you dwell in. Lord, as your people, bless us now to hear the word with understanding. Bless that what you have appointed for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time I was with you, we heard uh, some of the responsibilities that we have as Christian brothers and sisters. Uh, We're going to pick up with that with some more responsibilities. Those were particularly towards the officers that Christ has appointed in his church, a very particular and specific representations of himself in the ministry that they do on the behalf of Christ, under Christ. But this evening, we're going to look further at a responsibility that each one of us has as members of the body of Christ. And I want us to remember Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, where he talks about how we are like a body. And a hand cannot say to the eye, I have no need of thee. And he goes on with that imagery. And and so with that in our uh, background, we understand that we too have a responsibility one to another. And that's what Paul is dealing with in this text, how we conduct ourselves in the household of faith. And we have a reflection in that of Christ, even as the officers, as they're faithful, carrying out their specific responsibilities. Even so, we as God's people, if we are faithful under Christ in the things that God has called us to do, we are ministering on the behalf of Christ one to another so that the body is well cared for and built up to the praise and the glory of God. This evening, we're going to use five main headings. Uh, You see the uh, commonality, the Christian's responsibility to one another, the Christian's responsibilities to those in need, the Christian's responsibility to rejoice, to pray always, and to be thankful. Now, before I go into that, let me say we do not do these things in order to be accepted by God. We do not do uh, good works so that God will save us or give us a place in his kingdom. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But as a redeemed people, 
we have responsibilities. We're now in the household of God, and God our Father would have us conduct ourselves appropriately. And so we understand that Paul is writing with that context. He has dealt with matters of the gospel and uh, that this particular church in Thessalonica are new creatures. You might remember from Acts that Paul was with them very briefly and uh, the persecution of the Jews followed him there and he was not there uh, perhaps as long as he would have liked to have been. But in God's providence, uh, the church was established and the church was flourishing. Paul in time sent Timothy to, to see how they were and Earlier, he rejoices with great joy to hear how they are growing in the Lord under God's blessing. And yet he, uh, under the Holy Spirit, uh, writes these words of exhortation to them that they might continue to grow up unto Christ. And so I want to begin with the Christian's responsibilities to one another. We see that in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. We see here obligations that we have one to another. It's interesting how this is overlooked in so many churches today. They, they come to the church. Um, many churches don't even require a membership. Um, and yet if you think about civic organizations, associations that people join in, you know, whatever your profession, it seems as though there's some sort of association. There's uh, s- uh, clubs in the community that undertake to do certain things, and there's certain requirements. There's expectations of the members uh, in order to be faithful as a member. And yet it seems as though many come to the church and they're not interested in doing these things. So perhaps some of you belong to a home school group. In order for that to function well, Each member needs to take part and do something that it works well for the whole. Members are expected to volunteer and carry out their assignments. This seems reasonable. If you're going to belong to such a club or association in order for it to function well, that each person do its part. How much more so then in the church? Is it not true that the principle of participating in involvement doesn't come to the church from the world, but indeed the world has looked at the church and learned from her? So Paul is teaching this principle. The church has declared goals. These goals are under Christ. They're determined by our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, the stated goal in this letter is that the church would be preparing for the return of Christ. This is one of the themes that runs in both Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, that they should be preparing. And there's echoes in Paul's message of Jesus' parables about the faithful steward who is doing his master's will when the master comes and he need not be ashamed. But on the other hand, Jesus told parables of, of, of an unruly and an ungodly steward who was set over the servants, who was beating them and abusing them and was lazy. And when the master came, he was judged and cast into outer darkness. And so we see Paul wanting this young church to be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be our desire today. Uh, surely we're all aware that the church has been waiting some 2,000 years for the return of Christ. We don't know when he shall come. It, be like a thief in the night, is what our Lord Jesus told us. And so we're to be watchful and ready. And we're not just staring up into the heavens, waiting for him to come. We have duties one to another. And that's what Paul is writing about. Again, Paul is not teaching works unto righteousness, but indeed works from those who are righteous in Christ. That's the reason that they do that. These are an elect people, a redeemed people, a justified people, based upon the righteousness, righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, imputed to them by God through faith. One of the great truths of Scripture is that salvation is by faith alone. 
but it is never a faith that is alone. If we're truly converted, that saving faith will be followed by obedience unto God. Back in the uh, fourth chapter, Paul speaks of how uh, we ought to walk as those to please God. That should be our desire as we relate to one another, to live with one another, care for one another, that we should do all to please God who has saved us. So then, with that as a general heading of our duties to one another, I want to move to the second point of specific responsibilities to specific those with specific needs. And Paul mentions three classes of people in this 14th verse. There are those who are unruly, there are those who are faint-hearted, and there are there those who are weak. Unruly or disorderly. Um, this is... Uh, this first one is not surprising in light of the previous exhortation of our conduct towards those who are set over us in the Lord. Uh, those who are elders, officers in Christ's church to care for us. And Paul gives that admonition and it seems to flow out of the reality that there was a component of unrest. The second letter to the Thessalonians uh, gets more specific about that than we find in the first letter. And it's not uncommon. But what we should note is... Thessalonica is not Corinth. When you consider the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, they're much longer. They're much more specific. I've got a book on my shelf, and, and it deals with the letters to the Corinthians, and it's 20 things that nearly killed the church. And it seems to be that there are 20 themes in those two letters of uh, really uh, terrible things that are at work. Thessalonica is not like that. But nonetheless, like any church, even a healthy church, there are those who are unruly. Those who are faint-hearted and those who are weak. This word unruly, it's, uh, it's like soldiers marching and there are those who are out of step. That's the sense of the word that Paul uses in the original language here. They're, they're not marking, marching in step with the others. And when you've seen soldiers lined up in formation and marching together, you can quickly detect that one. Who's out of step. I used to be in a marching band. And I remember my first year. I was constantly looking at other people's feet. To make sure my feet were following their feet. That I was in step. But we can use Paul's word. That I wasn't unruly. And uh, we kind of pick up on that. When somebody is out of step. And indeed we're often. And we should be very gracious. As we'll see. Now in some cases. Those who are out of step. In the church are fanatics. They're meddlers. And they're loafers. These are some of the categories. That Paul will deal with later on. But Paul goes on to speak of the faint-hearted. These are the ones who are worried, that they're anxious. Um, in the letter, it was seen that there are those of them who are anxious about loved ones who have died. And Paul assures them that, <coughs> no, the Lord Jesus Christ has not come back yet, as some are teaching, but he will come. And those who are asleep in Jesus are with him. There are those who are worried. They're anxious about that. And Paul, twice in this letter, says that we should encourage such as these. It's a group that also would be worried about their own spiritual conditions, as back in chapter 14, verse 13, Paul talks about those who, uh, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. He goes on, so we believe that those who arose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in him. And then he goes on down in uh, verse 18. Well, I'm not going to read through that. But again, at the end of verse, that passage, it says, Therefore, comfort one another. There's these anxieties, the faint-heartedness. 
Let us remember, in doing this, we're reflecting Christ because the scripture tells us that he would not break a bruised reed. He would not snuff out a smoking flax. There's a a call in our Christ's likeness to be tender with the faint-hearted. But then there's also those who are weak. The word here is often used to refer to those who are morally weak. They're weak in their obedience. They're not walking as after their calling. And Paul has addressed those uh, in the first part of the fourth chapter. And he talks particularly about this is the will of God, verse 3, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It's interesting that that was a problem there that Paul addressed. And it seems to be a, a continuing problem in the church as the world around us has run off into sexual promiscuity and every form of corruption. And what we're experiencing in our day, in our culture, it's not new. The Corinthians were just as bad, perhaps even worse than what we see in our culture. And there are those in the church who are weak, perhaps having, perhaps having been redeemed out of that environment, and saved out of that, that culture and that way of living. They're weak, they're struggling, morally weak. Now, these three conditions are not exhaustive of all the conditions or needs within the church, but they're the ones that Paul addressed to this specific church at this specific time. And these three classes of need, it tells us more about the situation of the church in Thessalonica. I believe when I was with you last time that uh, we reflected how in Acts 17 that Paul was there briefly, and and this is a port city, and and we kind of, uh, through good and necessary consequence, conclude that probably the men uh, that were redeemed and part of the church who have become their officers, you know, they're they're dock workers, they're they're men of that would be considered of low birth. Uh, we're told by Luke and Acts that not a few noble women were saved at that time. And so you have those of a higher station in the culture of that day. And so there were these tensions within the congregation, thus making it difficult for the elders in Paul's exhortation that we saw before. Some disorderly, some faint-hearted, others weak. The church then was not all that different from the church now. The church is a mixed multitude. Certainly it's true. I don't know your congregation hardly at all. I know your pastor. Um, I don't know any of you, but it does not. it's not unreasonable for me to think that these three types of individuals are in this congregation. Uh, perhaps some of you are even mindful of those who might fall into these categories. Uh, let your thinking of them be charitable as we move along as to how you can be a help to them, not to find fault with them or to criticize them. We're a mixed multitude, and indeed, caring for such a flock is demanding for the elders. So Paul is calling on the whole church to work together for the collective good of the church. And again, we think of Paul's um, imagery of a body, that if one part of the body is sick, the whole body suffers. We really should think about that. When we are with one another, we see someone in trouble, that that should be a cause for concern for us. Perhaps it's our place to pray. Pray for that individual. Pray for the elders. For others, it will be their responsibility to come alongside. And we're going to consider how it is that we can do that. We want to have a healthy congregation. These are people that need help. Paul describes uh, the various help then that can be needed. Again, Paul is giving this as an exhortation to all. If you're a member of the church, this exhortation continues to have Uh, Relevance It applies to us today, in the church today. Paul would have us all to be engaged. 
John Calvin says, it's a common doctrine that the welfare of our brethren should be the object of our concern. The welfare of our brethren should be the object of our concern. So then Paul teaches the disorderly need admonition. Um, This word usually means sharp reproof. The purpose or intent then is to arrest them, uh, to correct and rebuke them, uh, to get the attention of their senses right away. Uh, Remember, these are those who are spiritually out of step and they deserve chastisement. They cannot be brought back any other way. There is a time for the application of church discipline. And that's something that the church officers will be involved in, though we may have a role in that. Perhaps perhaps a brother has sinned against us. Perhaps a sister has sinned against us. We've gone to them. They've not heard us. We've gone with the witness. They have not heard us together. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that we go to the church, that is, to the elders. We have a responsibility for those who are disorderly. Though we will see with the next two classes that we are to treat treat them gently, not so with the disorderly. Uh, These are often the obstinate and unruly. They demand something uh, more sharp and direct. They don't need to be dealt with smoothly. They don't need to be coddled. Paul will have none of it. It's the sharp rebuke that he calls for for them, to correct them in the way. Perhaps some of you can think of a time in your life when you were disorderly. Things were very much out of step with the way that God would have us to live. And you can remember someone coming to you and, in a sense, kind of shaking you up. It's like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And at the moment when we're in that situation, we're like, leave me alone, right? But then when God has brought us through it, we're on the other side. It was like, I am so grateful that God has used you in my life. When we join the church and we give our vows to submit to the government and discipline of the, the church, that's what we're saying. We want that. Because when we're in trouble, we need, as it were, the shepherd's rod to correct us, to gain our attention. But Paul says something very different for the faint-hearted. He says to comfort them. The faint-hearted need to be comforted. comforted. A sharp rebuke with them would leave them trembling, would leave them until tears. They would be undone. These are tender souls that need encouragement. They need comforting words. They need to be reminded of the the riches that are theirs in Christ Jesus. They need companionship. This is the type of ministry that we often do with the dying. Or perhaps those who are sick wondering if they're dying. Or perhaps those who are bereaved of someone dear to them. We want to minister to them gently, tenderly, and best of all, just companionship, just to be with them. I've been asked as a pastor, you know, what do I do? How, what do I do on a hospital visit? What do I do when I go to the shut-in who's you know, wasting away and has few days left? Just the minister present, just to be with them, to sit at their bedside, to offer. Can I read you some scripture? Can I pray with you? That's what is necessary for the faint-hearted. For the weak, they're to be helped. They're weak. We're not to abandon them. The word that Paul uses here communicates closeness, the coming alongside of. You would think about um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes. This is two are better than one. For if one falls, the other will help him up. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. This closeness is moral and spiritual closeness at times. That you know, We walk with a brother who is... Repentant and seeking to walk out his repentance of perhaps of 
some particular sin, we walk with them. We stay with them. We demonstrate a loyalty and a, a practical helpfulness to them. It is by standing. It is standing by someone who loses a job and helping them to move from one place to another. These are the sort of things that we can do. But before we move on, let me just ask you some questions by way of application. Do you see these same sort of needs in your congregation? Are these sorts of people around you? Do you understand that these imperatives apply to you right now, right here? We need to admonish the unruly, comfort the the, uh, faint-hearted, and help the weak. We should ask ourselves, how am I doing? Have have I shirked this responsibility? Have you seen somebody faint-hearted and left them to themselves? How have you responded Perhaps you think, well, I'm too busy to come alongside that sister or this brother. Have you passed by on the other side of the road like the Levite and the priest in Jesus' parable, where it was the Samaritan who came along and helped the one who was beaten? Perhaps it's a struggling mother. Do you think, well, somebody else will help her? Perhaps it's the brother who needs to be comforted. Is it too much to say, you can pick up the phone and call him, please don't text. That is so inappropriate when somebody's in need. You at least make a phone call or just go. Surely, we are able to do these things with some of those around us. We're not called to go to all of those. Surely, we all have a responsibility considering our, our nearness to someone in need. But it could be perhaps that there's someone that you don't know and you see the need and you come alongside that. And God blesses you with a wonderful and marvelous relationship as you get to be the hand and the feet and the ears and the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ in that person's life in a time of need. Before we move on, notice that Paul concludes verse 14. He says, be patient with all, all in this group, whatever their case may be, even the unruly, be patient with them. Paul is declaring that instead of being quick to reject someone or to try to engage with someone and be pushed away, that we be patient and we stay engaged and we continue to work and to be helpful for them. Sometimes the faint-hearted or the weak, they, they need someone to walk alongside them for quite a season. We let us must remember then that patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit, that it indeed is by Christ giving us His Spirit that we have what we need to do this. We're, it's not, we're not drawing on our own resources. We're drawing on the Lord and what He has given to us when He has redeemed us and given us His Spirit. Patient, is, um, in pro- when it's properly understood, it's, it's in contrast to irksomeness. If I, I don't know if that's even a word. You know? You know, we're inclined to get irked, right? Patience is the opposite of that. It involves a certain understanding. You know, we might say, you know, I was once there. Or, but for the grace of God, I could be that unruly one. And to minister with patience in that situation. You see that Paul then has given these couplets, or clusters of admonition. And he does so in verse 15. See to it then that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. You see, that's like the complete flip side. You've got the unruly, 
You have the faint-hearted, you have the weak, we're to be patient, we're to come alongside to minister. And then Paul says, uh, you might say, and, and don't even dare, let it not even be named among you that anyone would render evil for evil to anyone. Rather, always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And again, if you remember Paul's metaphor, his word picture of us being the body, if we're helping another part of the body, are we not helping ourselves? Are we not even ministering to Christ? Remember the parable that Jesus told late in his ministry in Matthew 25 of how he gathered before him the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. And these were commended for what? What were they that they did? To the least of these, my brethren, he said, when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was hungry, you brought me food. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick or in prison, you visited me. And they were commended. What did he say? You've done it un. To me. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever looked at your brother and sister in need and said, you know what? I have an opportunity to minister to them and at the same time to minister to Christ. That kind of shifts the whole picture, doesn't it? That's what Paul is talking about. Well, certainly we could linger here, but we'll move on. Paul now turns to the Christian's responsibilities, we could say, toward God or before God as we have... Uh, the, the rapid fire, as it were, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. We live our lives, I think you might be familiar, knowing your pastor, the bit that I do, uh, you're familiar with the phrase, quorum Deo, before the face of God. We live in his presence. It says, uh, we hear in the ironic benediction, you know, that, that he would lift up his face, that his countenance, that is that God's gaze, he's looking down on us. We're told that the eye of the Lord runs to and fro throughout the earth, looking for faithful ones. We live before God. And so we would do these things as to the Lord and for his glory. Paul then goes on to talk about attitudes, as, uh, attitudes of the heart as we are engaged in doing Everything. These particular things that we've just heard, but indeed anything and everything, that these attitudes of the heart, that indeed flowing from the hearts, would be named amongst us. We would begin first with a Christian's responsibility to continually rejoice. Now, the Thessalonians were no strangers to joy. As we consider uh, Paul's letter, what's been written before, we find that the transforming power of God had come down upon them and it changed them internally, given them new hearts. They became new creatures in Christ. The old ways gone, new ways have come. Uh, for all of them, it would be that they, they've cast off man's religion. They've cast all false religion. And now, having their eyes opened by God's grace, they can see the error and the foolishness of those, even the stupidity of following after false gods and the rejoicing that God has been pleased to bring the gospel message to them. You remember in the book of Acts is Paul and Barnabas and later Paul and Silas. They would go to the communities. Their practice was if there was a synagogue, they went there first and they proclaimed the gospel to the Jews. Quite often the Jews rejected that. Sometimes we hear of a few that did rejoice, but Paul was preaching as the apostle of the Gentiles. He was bringing the good news of God's salvation in Christ Jesus, not by works, but by faith. And the Gentiles rejoiced. This message was for them. There's a context. 
The Jews were aloof in those communities. They had no place for the Gentiles. They, they even referred to them as dogs. Indeed, in those days for the Jews, they, they were bigots towards Gentiles. And yet the God of the Jews, who has brought the gospel from the Jews and through the Jews, for Christ was a son of David, has been pleased to cast open the gates of his grace to include the Gentiles. Just picture that. Try to imagine that. We're so far from that. Uh, we've grown up in the church for many of us. Perhaps some of you here weren't. And you, you can remember when God prevailed upon your heart and brought you out of the world in the darkness and gave you salvation and the joy that overwhelmed you. This is the church of Thessalonica. This is what these people have experienced. They've been filled with joy knowing this transforming grace of God being turned away from the idols and being set free from the kingdom of Satan and brought into this kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a result of this, the power of the gospel was evident to them. Paul rejoiced when Timothy brought that report back to him. The joy that they were experiencing, Paul then, his heart now, he's the apostle of joy. If you read Paul's letters, you will understand that Paul is the apostle of joy. Just sometimes sit down with a highlighter, pick a different color than you usually do, and just go through his epistles and note how many times Paul talks about joy. And here we have him saying, rejoice always. The Thessalonians were being persecuted by their countrymen. They were false sons who had infiltrated the church. They were, they were distressed with disturbances. And humanly speaking, they were in danger. And yet, Paul says, continue in joy. Rejoice always. Is what Paul's urging upon them even possible? Yes. If we're in Christ Jesus, it is possible that we can rejoice in all circumstances in Christ Jesus Paul knows this joy is a gift from God to his people. Paul knows that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. He's the apostle who penned those words as the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. Joy is within these Thessalonian believers because the Holy Spirit is within them. And my friends, if you have the Holy Spirit, and indeed if you are redeemed, you have the Holy Spirit. You have no salvation apart from him. You have the one who gives joy. And joy cannot be removed by man or anything that man can do to you because it comes from God. Joy is from the Lord. Joy cannot be lost any more than salvation can be lost. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is dependent upon a relationship. We belong to God the Father in Christ Jesus. This morning I was preaching from the opening uh, verses of Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. And in verse 3, Jesus says, he's, taught, he's been talking about eternal life. The Father has given him authority to purchase a, uh, eternal life. And then he says, and this is eternal life, to know God and his Son, Jesus Christ. To know God. To know his Son. That's eternal life. My friends, that is all we need to have joy. There is no other basis for joy but to know God the Father and God the Son. So the command here, it is in the imperative, it's, it's a duty to be joyful uh, that then it is independent from how we feel. Uh, the emotions of our circumstance, they have nothing to do with emotion. That's happiness. 
Happiness may come and go. Joy endures. Even when we're unhappy, even when our circumstances are unhappy, we still can abide in joy because of who we are in Christ Jesus. Now, this joy is, as I've said, positional. It's relational. This is not some ecstatic eruption of the charismatic experience. What Paul is calling for is not whipped up by singing a praise chorus 16 times. This is what we have in Christ Jesus. It's actually, as John Calvin puts it, it's of a moderation spirit. This is, this is not joy that's just out of control. It's, it's actually in moderation. It's constrained and controlled by the Holy Spirit, who is the one bearing this fruit within us. We know people like this. I hope you know people like this. People who have suffered much. Maybe even somebody you know right now who is suffering much. And they're joyful. It has been my experience in my fairly long years, but not as many as some have had. But it's been my experience that those who have suffered the most, it's in them that I see the most joy. I'm challenged by the degree of joy that they have when I consider their circumstances. And it's because it's not, they're not uh, living their life based on their circumstances. They're living their lives, ba- life based on their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'll mention a name. I'm sure you know this name. Johnny Erickson Tata. As a young girl, dove into a lake, broke her neck, and has lived as a, a quadriplegic for decades. Um, I think she's a little older than I am. And so here for some uh, 50 years, I think that's right, maybe a little longer than that, has dealt with this. And if you've watched her program, you've listened to her podcast, read her books, there's one thing that just comes forth with a clearness of a bell. Joy. She's filled with joy. It's infectious. It's encouraging. And indeed, that's what God would have us to be. Can you imagine if each of us was rejoicing always. Would it be like you come together on, on the Lord's Day, you're, you're gathered before the service or after the service for that wonderful uh, means of grace, of fellowship. And instead of us, I was like, oh, you know, this, oh, you know, the dog, the cat, my wife, the, the job. We come, it's like, God is so good. God has blessed me. God has kept me. God has strengthened me. And just we're overflowing with joy. Our fellowship will be sweet. The body would be like um, giving an antibiotic to a, a, a body that's at the point of death because of infection. The joy would just, it was that we're drive out the darkness as we overflow with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And we share that with one another. Paul says, rejoice always. Paul also says that we have a responsibility to pray always. Pray without ceasing is the way the New King Jim, James renders it. We encounter difficult times. There are times of suffering and affliction. And it's in those times that we tend to pray. Be honest. It's, it's often after we've done this and this and this. We go, well, I guess all that's left to do is pray. I hope that's not the way you're living your life. That's not what Paul's called. Saying. Paul's saying, pray without ceasing. Always be engaged in prayer. And indeed, when we're doing that, we're communing and fellowshipping with our God which will give us different lenses, as it were, to look at our circumstances. And that indeed we might have joy in hard circumstances, that that joy would be evidenced within us. Now there's a debate about scholars, amongst Bible scholars, um, 
about the meaning of this word. Is it without ceasing? Uh, is it is it that we are we supposed to understand that Paul is saying we need to spend every hour of every day down on our knees before the Lord? Certainly not. There's too many other things that we are called to do. That if we were prostrate like some monk in a in a stone uh, uh, monastery somewhere, uh, we would never be able to do those other things. The, the way that this is written by Paul in the original language, it's it's in the present active sense. It's it's ongoing. Like we might talk about someone running, someone swimming. That's the sense of it. And it's also used in its iterative state. Children, don't get irritated by that word. I'll explain it to you. That is repetition. Keep doing the same action. That's what Paul is saying. Be about prayer. Keep on in prayer. So the command really is the sense of have a regular prayer life. Not in a legalistic sense, but let it be the pattern of your life that you regularly, daily pray. This is what we see our Lord Jesus Christ do. Jesus was fully man. Yes, He's fully God, but He lived in the fullness of our humanity. And He was regularly, consistently praying, seeking the blessing of God, His Father, through the Holy Spirit. To enable Him, as the God-man, as the Christ, to be faithful as the second Adam And do all that the Father had given him to do. Surely, if he needed to pray regularly, through the night sometimes, up early in the morning, before daylight, we're told, he went apart to pray. Let this be our practice, the regular part of our prayer life. This doesn't discount the idea that's communicated elsewhere in Scripture that we we do have special seasons. When we step away, uh, when we draw away from the normal uh, busyness of life. To seek the Lord in prayer, particularly when we're facing major decisions. Coupling that with fasting even, it's very biblical that we should do so. But what is prayer? It's a word that just rolls off our lips. You know, when somebody tells us something, like, well, I'll pray for you, right? You want to do that? You know, you got your social media, now you can you know, start putting praying and the little hands come out and say, click that. And it's like, oh, I've done a great thing. No, no, that's so trite. Prayer it's radical. It's what? We talk to the God of the universe when we pray. We come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, spilled His blood to tear down the veil between the holies of holies. We have direct access to the God who in the beginning spoke and created all things. That should overwhelm us more now than earlier generations. we got the Hubble Space Telescope up there that's seen further and further into the vast expanse of the universe. It's it's overwhelming if you take some time to comprehend that. And God is bigger than that. You know, they start talking about the numbers of stars in one galaxy. And how many galaxies are. And about that time, my mind explodes. It's, It's just too big of numbers. God keeps them all in place. And He has a name for everyone. And the Scripture says, speaking to Him, and not one of the stars is missing. That's who we talk to. We talk to God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that in Him we can have eternal life. That's who we talk to. I'm ashamed. Are you ashamed of how little we pray? It's one of the most neglected graces. We have not because we ask not. Dr. Joseph Piper from Greenville Seminary 
Um, I've heard him preach a particular sermon, I think, three times. The missing ingredient. He's all about preaching the word, expositional preaching, faithful leadership, all these biblical things that are revealed. He said what is so often missing in our Reformed churches is corporate prayer. I know nothing about your congregation's corporate prayer meeting. But I can really say, I can say pretty confidently, it's the least attended service. I think that's pretty much the case in every church. It's to our shame. We should gather in corporate prayer. We have not because we ask not. When God's people come together and pray corporately, things like Peter being set free from the inner cell with chains chaining him to guards and he's brought out. God answered the prayers of his people. God has done great and mighty things. I could tell you stories that I've learned in my 60-some years of God's people praying corporately and amazing things being done. A hole in the heart of a 16-year-old being closed. Yes, God still heals. God still does miracles. It's not because of someone you know, with a special gift. It's when God's people pray. My brothers and sisters, let us take this exhortation to heart. Let us be about prayer. Let it become a mark of our lives that we pray without ceasing. That we're always mindful that we're before God. We walk with God. God is within us. That's something else that just, I, can't, I can't comprehend. The Holy Spirit... Infinitely God lives inside of you and me. He's always there. He helps us to pray. What a tremendous gift. When we don't even have words to pray, sometimes we find ourselves there. The Holy Spirit is there to enable us to pray with groanings, with things we can't even articulate. I think the applications are obvious. And ask ourselves, is my prayer life as it should be? Could I be praying more? We all can say that. As I've read biographies and autobiographies of of the saints of the ages, men and women that we look up to and we admire and and we want to model their lives, one of the things I've consistently seen from these saints who you, you read their story, they are people of prayer. And there's a consistent lament that they wish they prayed more. I've never read an autobiography of a godly person that says, I think I've prayed too much. I don't think that book has ever been written. But let us move on to our last point. The Christian's responsibility to be thankful always. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This duty naturally flows from the others, doesn't it? It's impossible to think about prayer without thankfulness, although it's often the one part of our prayers that is the most left off. Thanking God for all his goodness to us. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. We get the supplication part. We have our request part done. But Paul tells us, because we need to be told, we should do so with thanksgiving. I mentioned earlier that Paul's the apostle of joy. He's also the apostle of thanksgiving. Again, notice that when you read his letters, how often he's speaking to the church about being thankful or grateful. One of my favorite commentators of just the media past generation is William Hendrickson. He says, when a person prays without giving thanks, he has clipped the wings of the prayer so that it cannot rise. 
quite a picture. Paul concludes this present trio of admonitions in all circumstances give thanks. Calvin notes that this is added as a needed limitation. Quote, for many pray in such a manner as at the same time to murmur against God and fret themselves if he does not immediately gratify their wishes. Calvin's picking up on something. If I could use a rather crude analogy, it's we, we view God like a, a cosmic vending machine or a genie in a bottle. When we need something, we run to God, give it to me, God, and then we irritate with God when he doesn't give it to us, when we want it on our terms. If we would start making gratitude, thankfulness part of our prayers, that will start changing how we view God. By Thanksgiving, we're reminded that we also need to be content with what God has given us. God knows our best. He knows what is best for us. And He will give us what's best. So if He withholds something we're asking for, it's because that's best for us. I think there was a, a program on when I was a kid. Father knows best. I don't even know if that's running in syndication, but you know it's interesting story. But I like the title, particularly when we think about God, our Father. We could say unequivocally, a human father doesn't always know best. But when we think about our Heavenly Father, our Father knows best. We can trust Him. We can entrust ourselves to Him. We can entrust our circumstances to Him. We can bring our prayers and leave them before Him, knowing that He will do well and that we thank Him for hearing us. Thank Him for answering us, even when the answer is no or not yet. Beloved child of God, how can you live before God without thankfulness? How can you, who have received the greatest gift ever given to sinners, eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, fail to be thankful? This should be an embarrassment to us. We should blush. We should repent of our ways. Let us be more thankful. I say these things to you as much as I say them to myself. The blessed remedy for correcting our impatience is thankfulness. That we turn our eyes away from our circumstances, turn away our eyes from our wants, our needs, and keep our eyes fixed upon the God of all grace. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, we'll be buffeted. But God has ordained that. We sing that wonderful hymn, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Easily said, more difficult to walk it out. But the words are true. Let us find contentment in God's blessings through a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. As the day of our redemption draws nigh, it is impossible for us to be taken unawares if we are doing these things. Paul is talking about the coming of the Lord. He talks about how it will be sudden, unexpected, uh, following along with our Lord Jesus Christ. We need not worry about when it happens if we're caring for one another's needs, meeting one another's needs, rejoicing always in, in the habit of daily communion and prayer with God and giving ourselves up to thankfulness and gratitude unto God. When Christ comes, He will find us walking before His face in a manner that we need not be ashamed. Brothers and sisters, we are to help one another in these things so that we, as the body of Christ, particular local expressions of congregations, but also more corporately. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to commune uh, in, in the best sense of being ecumenical with brothers and sisters in other denominations, other in churches, knowing that we have some differences, 
And yet, even with them, that we can be an encouragement. Because we're all members of the body of Christ. Let us do this so much the more as we see the day approaching. So that we be strengthened in the Lord. That we be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And that He will find us ready for His return. Amen? Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, these are marvelous things. These are weighty things. Lord, we find in them a, a word of rebuke for some. A word of correction. And others receiving a word of encouragement. And Lord, I hope for all of us, uh, as Paul wrote in another letter, that as he saw the love of the brethren, he says, increase in it more and more. Lord, wherever we're at in these matters, Lord, bless us by your Spirit to increase. That we would more and more put on Christ and more and more put off the flesh. We would live for your glory, looking and longing for the return of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This time, stand together. We'll be dismissed. Uh, I'll dismiss you with a benediction. Pastor Ventura told me that I was at liberty to do that. And I think it is a wonderful thing as God's people to go home with God's blessing resting upon us. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.